100.7 FM WHIN 1010 AM presents Sumner County Spotlight, a weekly public affairs program each Sunday at 10 AM. Sumner County Spotlight, exclusively by FNM Bank. 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville. FNM Bank offers personal banking, business banking, and mortgage loans too. Right here in Hendersonville, FNM Bank is one of the top independent banks in Tennessee. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. MMLS number 518158. Here's your host for Sumner County Spotlights, Tony Richards. Good morning, this is Jeff Shannon, and this is Sumner County Spotlight, brought to you exclusively by FNM Bank at 221 Indy Lake Boulevard and at myfnmbank.com. We're here each and every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock right here at WHIN, and this morning we are really pleased to welcome Chris Thurman, who is the managing ranger at Bledsoe Creek State Park. And good morning, Chris. Morning. How's everybody doing out there? Well, everything is good here, and I know that you really have a, a great history with parks. So what I'd like to do is start off, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yes, sir. So I graduated Gallatin High School in 93, went off to college, and got a couple different degrees right off the bat. Got a teaching degree, a secondary ed degree, as well as a biology degree, and uh, ended up teaching high school sciences for about 12 years. And at that time, that was 2012, uh, that I decided to go back to school for a third degree. That degree ended up being environmental geology, and that was at Tennessee Tech University. And I was always interested in being game warden, park ranger, that type of thing. And um, even though I had gone back to school for geology, uh, there was a post there for a seasonal position, what they call an SIR, a seasonal interpretive ranger uh, for Tennessee State Parks. And it was kind of one of these deals where in the biology building, there were tons of postings, all kinds of internships, job opportunities. Um, and in our building, the geology building, there was few and far between, comparatively speaking. And so one day there was just this eight and a half by 11 piece of paper there advertising this opportunity. And it was like, get together your resume and, and come show up at one of the rooms in the geology building for your interview. And there was 10 slots, if I remember. And I was, uh, I think there were two left. So one of 10, but there was already eight people signed up. So I was lucky enough to get that interview and uh, was able to do a seasonal gig in the summer of 2014 here at Bletcher Creek State Park. And so from there, I just worked my way through the Conservation 2 program, which is a fancy name for a maintenance man. I uh, became a mm-hmm. ranger after that and then was lucky enough to come back here as, as manager at Bletcher Creek State Park when my former boss, Mr. Rick Brooks, retired in the uh, summer of 2018. So so you grew up in Gallatin? Yes, I was a Gallatin native, born and bred, uh, been doing it all here in Gallatin the whole time. Okay, so the next question you had to go to Gallatin High School. Yes, sir. So are you following the green wave these days? <laughs> I do when I can. So I taught at the opposing high school, I guess you would put it. Um, when Station Camp High School came to be a thing, I was uh, the original crew that got hired in at Station Camp High School. So I had actually started my teaching career at Beach High School and taught there for about a year and a half, two years. Uh, and then they were building the new school in the form of Station Camp High School. And the way it was explained to us is like, unless you teach something very specific and we need you to stick around, basically the last few that were hired in are going to be shown the hatch, basically. And so uh, not wanting to go jobless, <laughs> I, I put in an application to go to the new school and teach at the new school, uh, which at the time I had been used to doing ecology, biology, and a little bit of physical science, actually. So uh, the way it worked out was uh, I got the job at Station Camp High School, and I did uh, initially – um, I got to forgo the physical science, not exactly my specialty. My wife teaches that now, but uh, I enjoyed really the outdoor stuff. So biology, ecology was really in my wheelhouse. So I got hired in at Station Camp High School and uh, started my career there as far as teaching goes. So do I keep up with the green wave? Uh, in, in my teaching days, that was the opponent. So not really. <laughs> and I did a, a bunch of soccer coaching there as well. So um, we were definitely keeping up with the times as far as soccer goes. So when do you you actually remember like the time, what made you want to go into being a ranger or the outdoor kind of activities? I guess you you had to be an outdoor person all your life. I was fortunate enough to grow up in a time where video games were not all the the rage. Um, We actually built forts and played in the creek and 
caught crawdads and things no. of that nature when I was a kid. And so I, from <laughs> just from youth, enjoyed being outdoors and building stuff with my hands and carrying around a hatchet, you know, or your Rambo knife or whatever, <laughs> and just built stuff and made stuff, built forts. And I just always enjoyed that. So I thought growing up that I would become a park ranger game warden. Well, again, when I was going to school for my first degree, uh, I, I was fortunate enough to have on the soccer team there in college at Tennessee Wesleyan, um, a friend whose dad was an actual park ranger. And so he kind of gave me the tips to the trade and what to go do, which at that time was a test that you took. And in this particular instance, I drove downtown Nashville, sat in a room with about 15 other people and took a test. And if you scored so high on the test, then you got an actual sit down and an interview and things of that nature. But it was very difficult to score in like the top five percentile to even get uh, an actual in-person interview. So I kind of sort of gave up on that, just went ahead and got a secondary ed degree along with my biology degree because I was a, thought I was going to be a big-time soccer player. But as I found out quickly, and that was before MLS and all that came around, that um, you don't really just go out and make a living playing soccer. So <laughs> yeah. I thought, well, I can coach soccer, and I'll fall back, and I'll become a teacher and a soccer coach, and, and that'll be a good fit for me. So that's kind of how I started, how I fell out of it, and then – of course, going back to school for the third degree, we just kind of fell in my lap, this whole seasonal uh, opportunity for Tennessee State Park, which reopened the door for me in that avenue, I guess. Did you volunteer much? Like, I guess when you were younger, did you volunteer at any parks? Or I, I know with soccer, I mean, pretty much all that's uh, volunteer. But in regards to the parks, and uh, then I want to get into the game warden terminology and we'll cover some of those. What are your thoughts here? Sure. So um, oddly enough, no, I did not spend a great deal of time uh, volunteering at state parks, which is one of the keys now that I speak about. Uh, young people approach me all the time, sometimes with their parents, sometimes not. But, you know, they want to know how, how do they get to be what I am. Or they'll, you know, point out my ranger, how, how do you become, you know, the park ranger. And, um, yeah, one of the key things is getting your foot in the door by volunteering um, you can come out and do something as simple as litter pickups when you see it advertised, or you can come just just be available, anything you need me to do. And the more you're seen and the more people know your names, the better off you are at being recommended to this park or that park. Um, what some people may not understand is not every park is equipped with the same staff. Here we have five people on staff. Two of those are clerks. I have one conservation two worker, which, again, is, is a type of a maintenance man. I have one ranger and one manager, which is myself. Um, and then you have Henry Horton State Park, for example. Ryan Jenkins manages down there, and he does a great job. And he has in the uh, in, a, in what we call the peak season, where he has a pool and lifeguards and such. I mean, he can approach triple-digit staff members compared to our five. So every park is staffed a little differently. But yes, um, one of the key ways to get into this realm of work is to definitely volunteer. And uh, you kind of already hit the nail on the head there. I was so busy playing soccer, um, uh, you know, I, I did select travel ball and that kind of thing. And, and so all my weekends were covered up with traveling and playing soccer. So that was pretty much all I did growing up was digging the dirt and, and play soccer. Yeah. Tell us if somebody, you know, you have a lot of kids that they might be interested in this, what would one have to go? What would you say? Of course, being a teacher, you, you, you have a good background knowledge of that, but if somebody wanted to get into doing what you're doing, what would they have to do and how would they prepare themselves to, to take on a position like this? Absolutely. Well, the key here is for us in Tennessee State Parks, right off the bat, you've got to be willing to do two things. One is which is go to college and get a four-year degree. You must have a four-year degree to hold a ranger or manager position. And you also have to be willing to go to the law enforcement academy and become commissioned and carry a firearm and that kind of thing. So right off the bat, you got to be willing to do those two things. So if you can check those two boxes and you're willing to do those things, then again, we've kind of already discussed it, but volunteering and just getting your name out there and getting experience in certain parks. If you can do multiple parks, that's always smiled upon as well. So volunteering when you can't quite yet work, and then when you are of age and you can work, then you want to just check out if there's any laborer positions or any kind of seasonal um, maintenance positions. And again, it's kind of park dependent on what might be available. But you want to just try to get your foot in the door at some point until you're ready to go to college. And if you can swing it and still do seasonal help or offer assistance, even if it's in a voluntary uh, role, then you want to basically make the park remember you and then get into college. And again, um, I want to 
specify that it's not just any four-year degree. There's certain types of degrees, obviously, they would uh, prefer over others. Um, so anything that's in the resource management realm, they like that. The park and rec management realm, they like that. We have several um, archaeological parks, so history and things of that nature can also be in play there. And then obviously you're just straight uh, biology degrees. Um, I also have a geology degree that plays a part in um, certain geology realms. Uh, we have certain parks that specialize in their type of topography and the geography that are located there. So you don't want to get just any four-year degree, but a, a, a specified degree that would help you in, in parks, basically. And uh, then you will have postings to check online, and um, depending on kind of like the rotation of the staffing within parks, for example, what I mean by that is, uh, here lately, within the last five years, which is kind of when I've been on the scene, we've had a, a high number of uh, retirements, and so there's becoming a lot of vacancies because there's a group that is retiring now. So when those all get filled, then likewise, within the next five to ten years, there probably won't be a lot of vacancies. So it's kind of cyclical by that respect. What are some of the duties, uh, if, in order to get your position, what did you have to do to learn about Bledsoe? I mean, it might have just you know come naturally, but what were there any obstacles or how hard was it to learn everything about that park? Well, um, we're 169 acres here on Old Hickory Lake. And um, the reason why I mentioned that is because we are small by comparisons to say Long Hunter State Park, which is where I went to be a ranger for about two and a half years. They are about 3,000 acres. Uh, They've got about three main areas or campuses, if you will, um, which is intermingled and mixed with residential area. So depending on what park you're at, you will be asked to do different things, I guess, when it comes right down to specifics. Um, but for here, we've got one main road in, one main road out. Um, we do have kind of a, a public boat ramp access, which is you got to go out of the main park to go over to it. But for the most part, this is a good security, uh, safety and security situation for the fact that we've got the one main park drive in and out. Um, as far as what did I have to learn to do, um, you got to be willing to start at the bottom, which I had no problem with. Um, I have always been a hard worker and, and a loyal employee and that kind of thing. So I always did what was expected of me and then some, and that kind of made me, I guess, uh, stand out and, and be of benefit, um, a, a good resource or asset to have. Um, I'm good at maintenance. So I can weld and plumb and do electric and things of that nature. So when I was here the seasonal, it all just, I really am just a lucky tale. Um, I just happened upon the SIR posting in college, just happened to go back for another degree. So that played into my favor. When I got here, I did the seasonal thing and then some. And when they could tell that I, I knew how to do the mechanical stuff and electrical stuff and things of a maintenance man nature, Again, I was just lucky for the fact that the guy that had done that job for 37 years, if I'm not mistaken, had just recently retired. And they'd already held an interview or two while I was here as a seasonal, and, and nobody was really fitting the bill. And so they came to me and said, look, Chris, you can do all this stuff. You live down the road. You're from here. Why don't you put in for the maintenance man position, the conservation two, as it is titled? And I said, well, guys, you know I'm in school right now for environmental <laughs> geology. Yeah. They said, oh, we'll do whatever we have to do to make it work. And so what ended up happening, um, that last semester, which was basically the end of summer 2014 till um, Christmas 2015, that was my last semester back in school, I worked here, uh, what is what is a 37 and a half hour work week for, for state employees. I worked here and I did four tens essentially. I worked Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Wednesday, um, I needed to travel to Tennessee Tech in Cookville to take my environmental GIS course, which is the only course I had to be on site for. And I was doing my senior thesis here in the park on the uh, universal soil loss equation, which is uh, called the Russell rule for short. So I was basically double timing it, working here, um, took on the, the conservation two position just because that would make me go from seasonal to full time. Their, their whole point was, if you want to be a ranger, you want to come become a ranger, you need to get you know from seasonal to full time, so that'll help you there. Um, so basically, my boss and the park system worked with me with my school schedule, and I graduated uh, Christmas of 2015 and uh, carried on as the maintenance fellow after that, conservation too, um, <laughs> until 
basically January 4th, 2016, I showed up on the doorstep of Long Hunter State Park for my first day as a ranger. What it seems to me, I mean, the image that you, I mean, you just portrayed, the image of that, uh, you know, being the Smokey the Bear kind of situation, is, it's, it's something you have to overcome constantly? Uh, to, to a degree. So we, we do things here in the park where we wear many hats, and that's a typical program that lots of different state parks will put on. Uh, the park ranger wears many hats, and so you'll do on what's called a program, which if you're not familiar with what that term means, it's basically an educational outing for visitors to the park. Um, sometimes they're what we call impromptu and people just walk up and they ask you questions and all of a sudden you're doing a program. You're educating mm-hmm. people about what you do or what specific questions they might have about the park. Other times they're posted and we've got dates and times for, for particular activities and, and or programs as we call them. So um, when they when they approach us, we, we have a certain uniform we wear. We have either a field uniform or what they call class A's, um, which is the dress uniform. And so depending on what work detail we're anticipating doing that day, we'll have one or the other uniform on. And it's just like seeing, I guess, you know, a county officer or a city police officer, um, the uniform draws people in and they, they want to approach you and ask questions, particularly if you're in a, a park setting. And so, yeah, they'll, they'll approach me and ask stuff about that. And sometimes it's more of a national park related question. Um, sometimes it's actually a forester type question. Um, Beginning out, it's, I think when kids grow up, they think of a park ranger, and what I thought a park ranger did is more what a forester does, meaning you're packing chainsaws with you and you're you're dealing with down trees and clearing trail and all that kind of stuff. That's more in the realm of a forester is what I've come to learn over the years, whereas a park ranger is more on one park. He's assigned to that park. He takes care of that park, and any and all duties assigned to him by the, the park manager. Uh, do we get Smokey the Bear questions? Yes, and a lot of that has to do with the uniform. And then we just kind of deviate however we need to to answer their questions based on what they're trying to figure out. We're coming up on our first break right here, but when we come back, we're going to find out what is it like in the day in the life of Chris Thurman, the managing ranger of Bledsoe Creek State Park. So think about that. And we're going to be right back right after this from a message from our sponsor, FNM Bank at 221 Indian Lake Boulevard and at myfnmbank. FNM Bank presents Sumner County Spotlights. Since 1906, FNM Bank has been serving Middle Tennessee with first-class products and services. Visit them today at 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville or myfmbank.com. Well, welcome back to Sumter County Spotlight and our guest, Chris Thurman, the managing ranger at Bledsoe Creek State Park. You know, it's a very, very hard position. I mean, there's a lot you have to know. And and quite frankly, it's probably more than I ever thought that one would have to have with the degrees and the knowledge you would have to have to be the the park ranger. But uh, let's find out a little bit about, uh, Chris, what, what your day is like on a normal basis. Sure. So, as you might expect, uh, when it comes to any parks, but specifically state parks, we're very busy on the weekends. Obviously, most people are off of work. And so, a Saturday and and recently a Sunday would be your two busiest days of the week. Um, So, when we get to work, we typically get here about 8 o'clock earlier if we need to. If we have a sunrise program, we'll get here earlier. If we have a nighttime program, we'll flex time off in the middle of the day and try to be here in the beginning when people might start showing up and then also be available last thing at night. So when I get here, I got a, a kind of like a priority list that I go through just on a routine, whether that's a Monday, Saturday, Wednesday, it doesn't matter. So when I get to the park, I check both boat ramps, and uh, we always are first thing. I'm, I pride the park in being litter-free, and we clean up very well here. We've gotten constant compliments on that. Um, so we take care of the park and make it look as good as possible, as early as possible. We've always got a nuisance by the name of Ricky the Raccoon. All the <laughs> raccoons come out and visit us every night, so you can always count on trash can lids being removed mm. and some type of litter being out in the various uh, day-use areas where we have um, trash cans located. So first thing first, you show up at the at the boat ramp, make sure everything's kosher there. We've got three trash cans there to pick up the litter, make sure that nothing's out of order there, the light hasn't been busted that hangs out over the ramp, things of that nature. Now here at Bletto Creek, we're lucky enough to have a campground. I have 58 sites with power and water and then another 19 in primitive. So these all come uh, with hang tags or posts that could have a hang tag. So one of the things I'm looking for when I drive through, just from, I guess, uh, 
the campground as- aspect is any kind of leaking spigot, anybody looks like they're having problems with their power or water, making sure there are hang tags hung there and that the dates are pretty well in check. You know, somebody's there and they're supposed to be there. Um, I'm also checking uh, the canopy as I'm driving through. Um, you might be surprised on how often we get windstorms here being right on the lake, so we're constantly having broken over trees or treetops. Um, and so I'm making sure that there's no dangerous or low-lying limbs and things of that nature that have might have occurred overnight, uh, particularly if there's been a windstorm or any kind of storm. So you're basically just going through the park real slow, windows down. You're meeting people in day use because they're already here hiking and walking real early. A lot of people have their dogs with them on leashes. And um, you're speaking to everybody, double-checking that the shelters, if they're reserved, uh, is the appropriate paperwork put up, and are they you know, documented as reserved for the day. So you're just checking on that type of thing, um, making sure no, nothing looks out of order, and that people in the campground are where they're supposed to be. And uh, so if I, t- I get here around 8 o'clock, I'm typically back to the office by 9-ish. So it takes about an hour to go across the park and, and talk to people and check everything out and make sure everything is, is in order. And when I get to here at the office, um, the clerks are typically in the office. I have two of them. One or both are typically here, given a typical schedule. And so we'll just catch up on anything that needs to be noted of interest in the park. Sometimes we'll get heavy rains, and I'll have to block off certain sections of the trail. So the clerks need to be informed of that first thing. That way they can tell people that walk in or call in, hey, we've had some rain. There's certain sections of the trail on the Shoreline Trail, for example, that is blocked off for today. So we just kind of catch up real quick, make sure if anything of interest needs to be denoted to them in the park. And the next thing I do as I'm in here checking emails and voicemails that might be left for me. Again, this is all kind of park dependent, but for me, there's there's one of me and one of uh, Ranger Smith. Jennifer Smith is my ranger, and so everybody's got to do somebody else's job at some point. And so for me, I don't really enjoy being just tied to the desk and typing on the computer all day long. I'm a hands-on guy. I like to get out and build stuff use heavy machinery and make the park look as good as possible and and fix trails and take down trees and things of that nature. So as quickly as I can get in the office and take care of my office duties, then I'm usually outside making sure that everything's good um, on the trail system or in the campground and working on, you know, different various projects that we have going on in the park. You said raccoons earlier. Uh, I guess we really don't have a bear situation up here, especially where you're located. Do we have bears in this uh, part of the world? Not to my knowledge. I don't think they've traveled quite this far. Um, The last spotting that I've talked to people kind of in the Cookville area, Crossville Cookville area, they've kind of gotten that far. Um, I do have that question, you know, pretty frequently. Uh, probably once a month, somebody will come in and they've never been here before. They've never been this far, um, this direction from where they're from. And they're used to being in East Tennessee and, and do bears come here. So, no. Um, and, I, and I keep in pretty close contact with our local TWRA agents. And that's something that if I have to contact them, I'll just always follow up on. So, no bear sightings, right? We don't have good, any issues good. with that. Mm-hmm. And every now and then you'll read in the paper or, or see somewhere on social media that somebody's found bear scat. You know, in the local area, and so that always rises everybody's interest yeah. um, on the situation. But no, uh, to, to my knowledge, we don't have any bear issues in the area. So if people are going to come to the park, uh, speaking of creatures, what are some of the other creatures they might have to look out for? Well, dangerous creatures. We don't have a whole lot of dangerous creatures. We might have <laughs> yeah. a snake here or there, but again, I've never spotted one here, and I've been working here uh, at least off and on since 2014. Um so the copperhead could be a potential mm-hmm, <laughs> animal yeah. to steer clear of. But as far as friendly animals, the, the main three things you'll see here, and I've got a, a couple of uh, older couples that drive through the park every day, and they got little clicker counters, and that's their thing. That's what they do every day. They drive through here and count the number of white-tailed deer that they see in the park. Wow. Um, <laughs> I think one couple just counts them here in the park. Mm-hmm. Another couple travels like out to lock four at the other side of town and they got like a little route that they travel not just here in the park and they're counting white-tailed deer so white-tailed deer are very plentiful here for us it's something we see every day and it's almost like you don't even see them because they're here every day and they're right up close to the road and and they're just doing their own thing um so that would probably be the number one draw as far as an animal that people would come out to see um we have a lot of wild turkey and we have a lot of gray-tailed squirrel. Uh, every now and then you'll see a fox squirrel. And then if you want to venture out onto the water's edge, the other thing that's really cool to come out and you almost always will see is the great blue heron along mm-hmm. with the great white egret. 
which are two type of uh, crane birds that forage along the water's edge. And we have a, a small protected area here in, in one of the coves. And uh, there's a little observation platform you can walk out on and kind of observe those two birds, as well as all kinds of turtles, um, mainly being either yellow or red ears sliders. Also, from time to time, we'll have some snapping turtles in view. And um, they'll roll up right to the observation platform. I'm sure people feed them even though you're not supposed to. So they kind of all huddle around along with uh, bluegill, perch, things of that nature, your smaller fish. They'll also huddle around thinking they're going to get some little bite to eat. So as far as animals, those are those are the main attractions to the park. People will show up to look at those and see those. and um, But nothing really from a dangerous aspect. Mm-hmm. You can hear coyotes in the distance at night. And I'm pretty sure they live to the north up on the hillside here on the Harsh property. But again, it's possible to see a copperhead venomous snake around, but Mm -hmm. I have never seen one. There's what's called a great northern water snake, which is a very similar colorization and print pattern. And so those are commonly mistaken for something that is venomous. Yeah. So do you do educational uh, talks about snake recognition or animal recognition? My ranger is a snake person herself. She has a a corn snake that she keeps in her office by the name of Mr. Slithers and (laughs) is an oft asked for individual and people will show up and actually say, is Ranger Smith here? I hear she has a corn snake. So if uh, she is here and on duty, obviously I put them in contact with her. If not, I'll open the door and I'll show them Mr. Slithers. Um, I don't dislike snakes, but that's her snake, and she's used to handling it, so I don't get him out. But he's in there, and he's of a reddish color, and he's very dazzling to look at, and and it's really cool. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we do educational programs all the time on on many animals. Um, She does uh, a little program called uh, Animal Tracks, in which she gets out Plaster Paris, and we've bought some, like, molded tracks, and kids come out, and they can pick a particular track and mold it and shape it, you know, with these prints that we have, and they get to take home basically, you know, a, a clay or porcelain mm-hmm. uh, souvenir mm-hmm. from the park. So mm-hmm. we talk about that kind of thing, and uh, we do botany-related things as well. I took a uh, Cub Scout, I guess a Boy Scout troop, I should say, um, on a tree ID hike the other day, and uh, we've got a couple good spots um, where we have multiple multiple species of trees, and so it can kind of point out the different barks, the different leaves, things of that nature uh, here in the park. So it's all about an educational aspect for us. One of the questions that I have, and this is my favorite, the eagles. Do we have any eagle population or birds of prey um, that you might have there in the park? Great question. So I do get that one from time to time. Um, so we don't have any nesting eagles. Um, if you were to drive to the park, and that means you're taking Ziegler's Fort Road, and you pass the park entrance, you will eventually end up at a dead end in the form of Cairo Boat Ramp. Mm-hmm. Down near Cairo Boat Ramp, which is main, mainly right there on the channel, um, Old Hickory Lake or Cumberland River, however you want to look at it. So they nest down there, but they do come to the park to forage. So I can't claim any nesting eagles. But they do show up in the sky from time to time, and they're foraging here on our waters. Um, I tell this story every now and then, but there was the coolest thing that happened to me, and there was absolutely zero persons around to witness it. So it's just my story to tell, and I had nobody to even look around and be enthralled with it. But I was checking out Shelter 2 one morning, like I told you, when I come in, my typical routine. And I looked up, and there was a low-flying eagle, and it had something in its talons for sure. It was clear. And as it got closer, it also got lower, and I could tell it was struggling with its catch. And it released it for whatever reason. I don't know if I scared it or what. I mean, I didn't think it was that low. But it dropped this giant fish, which I'm pretty sure, if I remember right, was a stripe, um, which can get pretty large. Yeah, and this, yeah. this fish had to be, I don't know, at least a foot, foot and a half, you know, several pounds. And it dropped it out of the air, and it hit in front of me probably, I don't know, 20 feet from me on the asphalt in the parking lot. And I felt it in my feet. It fell from so high, and it was such a big fish. And it bounced into the adjacent uh, woods. And I ran over there to kind of look at what fish it was, and it had talon holes in it and everything. And I looked up to see if the eagle was circling or what, and he had momentarily lit in the top of this tree above me. So he's watching. I got back in my truck and backed (laughs) out of the way and tried to get out of sight, out of way thinking it might come back to try to get it 
And of course, it never did. It flew off, but it was just something that will probably never be seen by me again. And mm. there was no one there to witness it. And it was just pretty cool. And anyway, so I know they do come here and forage, but I don't think that we have any nesting eagles. So do you have migrating um, birds and things like that? I mean, they, they only come certain times of the year? Uh, we do. Um, well, and, and maybe an obvious one is the, the hummingbird, the ruby neck hummingbird, um, ruby throat hummingbird. Um, we've got, uh, since I've been back as manager, I got put out here a pollinator garden. And so they they were always here, and my campground host would put out, you know, the feeders and such. So, But since we've got the pollinator garden right up here next to the office, you can see a lot of hummingbirds around, and of course they're seasonal. They'll they'll come and go. Matter of fact, the ones at our house, which isn't too far from here, um, left probably within the last couple of weeks, two or three weeks. Um, but in addition to that, I'm trying to think of the correct month here. It's in the spring, and I'm not going to go on record to say exactly what month, but April, Mayish, somewhere in there. There's a white pelican influx that comes, and they light all out here in the cove, um, right along the channel. And they'll stay around for a few days, and then they're they're gone. And the same effect happens over at Long Hunter State Park as well. So those white pelicans migrate, and um, that's a pretty cool sight to see. Mm-hmm. And it only happens for a few days, whereas the hummingbirds are you know kind of here from March till October in that range. Awesome. Well, listen, we're talking with Chris Thurman. Uh, he's the head ranger over at Bledsoe Creek State Park. When we come back, we're going to find out more about what goes on in the type of programs that Chris has there at Bledsoe State Creek Park. And we'll be right back after these words from F&M Bank at 221 Indian Lake Boulevard right here in Hendersonville and at myfnmbank.com. FNM Bank presents Sumner County Spotlights. Since 1906, FNM Bank has been serving Middle Tennessee with first-class products and services. Visit them today at 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville or myfmbank.com. Okay, welcome back to Sumner County Spotlight. This is Jeff Shannon, and we're continuing our talk with the head ranger at Bledsoe Creek State Park. That's Mr. Chris Thurman, and he's going to tell us a little bit now about some of the programs that they're offering out at the park and uh, how you can take advantage of them. Chris? Um, we here try to get things posted about four, four weeks out. Uh, give everybody a month or so to plan their schedule and their outings. Um, so as you might expect, the busier programming days are going to be Saturday, Sunday, um, you can find these things on a couple different websites. We try to play it up to social media as much as possible. So our own state park website, Boto Creek State Park at tnstateparks.gov, you can find us there. Um, now playing Sumner and also now playing Nashville. Um, we linked in with those guys and try to get those things submitted again about four weeks or a month out. Um, so you can find us on social media as far as what we're offering. I can tell you that typically on the uh, third Thursday of the month, we do a little thing called Little Naturalist, and that's where the park ranger um, will have sign-ups, and you can sign up to come out and do uh, themed outings, and not everyone is the same. So every month, the third Thursday, you can count on a Little Naturalist program being offered. Um, Typically, there's a small fee involved, but you also typically go home with some kind of craft or some kind of souvenir from the park. So you can look on our social media uh, outlets to see um, what we're going to be offering as far as the specific theme. Um, Unfortunately, uh, this year, with the COVID situation and the pandemic being on top of us, we've had to cancel our two most popular events. Um, We easily get 2,000-plus people for our trunk or treat, which is typically the Saturday before Halloween. Mm. Um, And we, um, my wife and I in particular, we got married on Halloween. We're big Halloween people. So um, luckily, we're surrounded by people that are also enthusiastic about it. So we usually decorate areas within the park, um, particularly a trail um, that kind of is adjacent to the park office. Last year, we had really bad weather, if you recall. It was very cold and very rainy. So we kind of changed things up, and we made this kind of zigzag formation inside the office, which there's not a whole lot of square footage to work Mm -hmm. with. But um, we had certain stations, so to speak, set up inside the office, and People did have to park where we could get them. Parking is always a, a concern here for any time we have an event at Bledsoe Creek State Park just due to the parking availability we do or, in this case, don't have to work with. But they were made to or asked to park, walk to the office, and then peruse through the office and to these stations. And everybody, to my surprise, really thanked us for having it. A lot of things have been canceled due to the weather. But moving forward to this year with the pandemic and all, um, we've just had to cancel it. Um, 
again, I'm a big Halloween person. And so the way I looked at it was I didn't want to be the cause of a spike in my local community just because I like to hand out candy to kids and see cool costumes. Mm -hmm. I felt it would be irresponsible um, uh, for us to have it and take that potential uh, opportunity to have a spike in the community. So we did cancel it, and that's unfortunate. And um, then following right after it, usually the first weekend in November, is what we call the Tennessee History Trail event. We have about a quarter-mile-long trail, in which we have about six stations set up there. Um, and it's supposed to be a picture back in history of Tennessee. It starts in about the 1500s and ends in about the 1800s. And basically just how did life look and how did uh, Tennesseans progress from 1500s to 1800s. And we've got a couple of structures built there. Uh, the goal is when it's all said and done, all six of these points of interest and dates and time will have structures there to some degree. And when we have the actual event, um, everybody's always in, in character. Everybody's always in proper period dress. There's fires going on. There's musket shooting happening. Um, Tomahawk throwing is happening. So it's very interactive. Uh, People can stand and see a great number of things from the different time periods. Um, And uh, Middle Tennessee History Coalition is who partners with us on that. They're responsible for a great deal of all the work that's done on this history trail. And um, so, unfortunately, we've had to cancel that one also because we typically have people in groups of 15 to 20 that move from station to station. They're in close proximity. The uh, reenactors uh, felt it would be um, not as good as a presentation if they were made to wear face coverings and masks and stuff. So they're going to do something virtual and offer that on social media platforms virtually and live with having the real thing. Um, so that's a little unfortunate as well. Um we're getting ready to build the schedule for November, December. I usually do two months at a time. And so what we have decided is to try to alter another very popular program, um, a campground host that has been with me for a long time. He and Miss Lois, the Owens, have recently moved on from campground hosting, but they live in the adjacent area. And he has always played Santa, and he's come back to play Santa this time. And uh, so we're going to do some kind of adjustment so that we can kind of keep some social distancing going on mm-hmm. while still allowing Santa to be at Bledsoe Creek State Park. Um, I have not yet set that in stone as to what dates and exactly what the outing is going to be comprised of. But we do we do hope to hold a couple of Santa outings um, in December, um, probably beginning to mid of that month. So unfortunately, the three things that we really look forward to later on in the year um, – are either canceled or reduced to some degree. I, th- I think the one thing you have to do is get uh, Mr. Barry Young out there and dress up in some of those costumes. That might be uh, might be a lot of fun. Yes, Mr. <laughs> Young comes to visit us uh, here and there. He brings us new maps and uh, new uh, pamphlets from his office. And uh, he actually came out probably uh, beginning of the summer. And he and I spoke to a uh, to a group of people that were basically coming out to just tour the area. And uh, he and I set up at a uh, shelter too. And just mm-hmm. kind of both spoke for uh, 30 minutes, 45 minutes each, and kind of discussed with these people who were touring the Sumner County area about basically what the county had to offer from his perspective and obviously mm-hmm. what I yes. had to offer here from a, a Tennessee State Park. Yeah. But, yeah, he's probably good for that. Uh, I show up at his uh, <laughs> Irish event over here at Lunch Up Fort yeah. every year, my wife and I, and um, our, our giant dogs. We show up over there, and we're in costume. So, yes, he should probably return the favor. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I noticed that one of the events you have, the Harvest and Haunts, it says reg- registered campers only. Tell us about uh, how how they can camp out there. Right, right. Um, so we've been lucky enough to have some sponsors, um, Exit Realty, uh, the Wilkerson's, that have stepped in, and they're going to give away uh, gift cards, essentially, for first, second, and third prize on our, basically, what is a campsite or camper decoration contest. So um, what you mentioned there is, uh, yes, it's only for registered campers only, so the idea is... You are to get in and get your site, um, get here and get decorated, and be ready. I think the posting says 7 p.m. Don't quote me on that specifically, but later on in the evening, 6, 7 o'clock, definitely after it gets dark, um, we will have some judges that will drive around. And uh, if, if you are entered into the competition and you let us know so, they're going to come around and judge your sites. And then the Wilkerson's have been gracious enough to make donations to the park in the form of gift cards that will be given out for first, second, and third prize. Uh, interesting. So when we say camping, we're not talking RVs and motorhomes and things like that. Oh, absolutely. Sure, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, 
to touch on that just a moment, um, any of the 58 sites that obviously doesn't have the campground host, uh, they have power and water, and you can tent camp on those as well as bump pool, RV, motorhome, what have you. The only um, specifications we have as far as what can't go where is in primitive. It is tent camping only. Uh, no campers are allowed in the primitive area. Mm-hmm. So uh, whether you're tent camping in primitive only or if you're dressing up a motorhome or bumper pool, what have you, you're you're free to join the competition and dress it up however you want to try to get in the competition. And speaking of competition, um, how is the pumpkin decorating um, event? Is is that still on? Yes, as far as I know, we're still planning on having that, unless I get a new set of protocols. Right. But we're implementing social distancing, have a mask with you if you can't stay within six foot or beyond six foot of one another, I should say. But, uh, yes, uh, Ranger Smith should be hosting that program, and uh, you'll get to paint your pumpkin and take it on. Well, and, and I think there's probably tons of educational programs uh, that you have in different events that can go on out there. What would somebody do if they wanted to reserve a, a campsite or and bring their RV or camper in? Sure. So uh, you can reserve up to 365 days out. Full year out, you can reserve, and that sounds preposterous maybe to some people. Um, it didn't used to always be a reservation system. I think that this what we call an Ateneo reservation system got put in place in 2012. Prior to that, it was first come, first serve. And so that means you showed up, throw out a lawn chair, and that means it was yours. So now it's by reservation only. You can do that 365 days out. And the reason why that becomes critical for some people is specifically like for 4th of July or Labor Day weekends or, or popular heavy camping weekends. You get a site, you love the site, you know, and you want it forevermore. As soon as you're done staying there, you get right online and you book it for the next year. Because if you if you wait any length of time at all, particularly for holiday weekends, you're not going to find any sites. We typically stay anywhere from the top five to top ten in campsite rentals reservations in the system compared to all the other 55 state parks. So by percentage, we're very popular and we stay booked on the weekends. If the weather's going to be decent whatsoever, we'll stay booked on the weekends. So getting back to your point, how do you go about this? You can either call in and make a reservation with myself, the ranger, one of the clerks and, and do it online via the phone. Or what is easier, if you're computer savvy, have a smartphone, you can go online and just book yourself. Um, and that's typically the easiest for people that can navigate uh, tech pretty well. You can go on, you can look at the sites. When you hover over a number, um, it'll pull up an actual photograph of the site. It'll tell you whether it's got shade or not, the amenities it comes with or not. Um, for example, some of our roads, which are our more expensive roads, have 50, 30, 20 amp service plus water. And then we have like a middle of the road uh, option which is on Rabbit Jump Road, which only has 30 and 20 amp service plus water. So they're kind of in the middle of the row. And then our primitive, obviously no no water, no electric, and, and those will be the cheapest uh, option that we have. So you can call in, you can come in, or you can book yourself online up to 365 days out. Um, the low-end price ranging, we've recently gone to something called flex rating, kind of like a airline or a hotel might do. Um, so typically speaking, um, Throughout the week, not a holiday weekend, not a busy weekend, it'll be anywhere from 16 for Primitive, 27 for Rabbit Jump, and then 33 for Deer Run and Blue Heron are more expensive roads. And then they have a chance to flex for uh, weekend pay to go up a dollar or two per night. And then they'll flex, you know, five, $10 on like the popular weekends, such as 4th of July, the holiday weekends, things like that. <clears throat> I didn't know that you can actually do that, but um, any Sasquatch uh, sightings in the park? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, uh, not to my knowledge. Um, <laughs> you'll hear some beating and banging every now and then as you with kids <laughs> playing around in the, in the woods. Again, I... I'm I'm really particular. I'm known to be very particular. I like things a certain way, and I notice things that other people don't, that kind of thing. So when I drive around in here, specifically first thing in the morning, but any other time of the day as well, when I'm just patrolling and making sure everybody's minding their manners, um, I will hear things, I will see things, and go to inspect them. And um, so I'm not out of the realm of seeing a Sasquatch, but I personally have never witnessed one. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. So in, in the next segment, we're up against our final break here, but in the next segment, I think it's probably a good time to 
tell some stories and about some of the things that you've run into and maybe some bizarre, unusual kind of activities. So uh, stand by. We're up against this break, and we'll continue our conversation with Head Ranger Chris Thurman, and we'll be right back. FNM Bank presents Sumner County Spotlights. Since 1906, FNM Bank has been serving Middle Tennessee with first-class products and services. Visit them today at 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville or myfmbank.com. We're glad you found us this morning for Sumner County Spotlight. Of course, we're here each and every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. This morning, we're talking with Chris Thurman. He's the head ranger of Bledsoe Creek State Park. So, Chris, uh, let's jump into some maybe some crazy stories you might have, and then we can get into park etiquette, what people should do and not do. Good for So um, when I began my career as a park ranger, I started at Long Hunter State Park and the January month of 2016, and um, you know that's over there um, outside of Antioch, and so we got a different clientele that visits over there than we do here at Bledsoe Creek State Park outside of Gallatin, and that was a day-use park only, didn't have any camping over there, but that's probably where I encountered some of the more sketchy situations. So you're meant to go around at sunset and close different areas, about six or so areas all in total. You go in, you make sure that nobody's uh, occupying the area. If they are, you're meant to retrieve them and get them out of the area so you can physically gate and lock the area down. There has been a couple instances over there in which you were on edge and you thought you might need to pull your weapon or pull out the mace or something like that. One of the ones that I remember specifically, so I started there as a ranger in January but didn't get an opportunity due to scheduling and people already enrolled and the summer or what we call the peak season hitting. I didn't actually get a chance to go to the academy until October. At that time, which I think it is still at this length, it was a 12-week schedule and basically you live dormitory style down at what they call Toledo, Tennessee Law Enforcement Training Academy. So in the summer of that year, before going to the academy, before having a duty belt, even though I was wearing a uniform, there was a couple of crazy guys that ended up down in Area 2, as we called it at the time, Couchville Lake area. And it was right close to closing time, and I started headed that direction to close or flush that area and, and close and lock the gate. And I started having people flag me down, and they were waving me down, and I'd stop, and they'd say, hey – there's somebody that's acting crazy down in this area that just smacked a girl. And I said, oh, okay, I'm headed that way. And, and everyone I encounter, I'd get a little more information, a little more information. And, and about the second to the last person I encountered was the woman that was struck. And what I figured out, first and foremost, do you want to press charges? And at this time, I'm working with another ranger, mainly because I am not duty belted at this time. And he's on the other side of the park, and we were shorthanded maintenance we were trying to get a lot of mowing done. So he said, I'm going to head to the other side. I'm going to be mowing until close to quitting time. And I said, okay. So as soon as I started making these encounters headed to this area, I started trying to radio him. I got out my cell phone, started trying to call him and there was no response. You know, he was on a mower, which is typical. I mean, here people get on the mower here and you, you can't hear the radio. So basically I'm on my own and I'm headed down and every, every step of the way I'm encountering a new vehicle. And the lady says, no, I don't want to press charges, but I do want to point him out because I don't want it to happen to anyone else. I said, okay. And what this ended up being was a typical run group, and I can't remember the day of the week. It was either like a Tuesday or a Thursday, but basically day of the week, not a weekend, in which the same old 10 or so people showed up to run together. And so I made my way down there. The last guy I encountered after the lady said, white Grand Cherokee sitting kind of over in the corner. So I get down there. And there's two individuals, two males. Yeah, I think they had, I know it was out of state, and I want to say either Louisiana or California tags. I can't quite recall. But clearly one of them was pacing and under the influence of something. And basically the, his buddy was trying to corral him. And I said, man, it's your lucky day. This, this lady doesn't want to press charges. So what you need to do is corral your buddy and get him in that vehicle, and I'm going to escort you out of here. And the whole time I'm still trying to get a hold of the other ranger, and, and he's not responding. And so his buddy, this is what was so crazy, his buddy tries to get a hold of him. He throws his buddy off of him, and then he turns to me, which he hadn't even really noticed me yet, I don't think. And I was probably 30 yards away, maybe 20 yards away. And he turned, and, and he finally noticed me, and he, his eyes got real big, and he locked in on me. So I am with nothing. I don't have even a baton and nothing on me. So I just square up like he's going to charge me, so we're going to fight. <laughs> and at the last second, his buddy grabs him, and puts him in a sleeper and drops him to the ground. 
And, you know, I give it a few seconds. He seems lifeless. And I yell to the, to the kid, the, the guy that was putting the sleeper hold, I said, do you want me to help you load him up? And about that time, that guy bounced up off the ground, oh, again, geez. confirming my suspicions that he was under the influence of yeah, something, yeah. and began to pace around the vehicle, ignoring me again, but still pacing. Finally, the guy said a few words to him, this, that, and another, explained that they, they were going to be in trouble if they didn't hit the road. He ushered him into the car, shut the car door, and I followed them out of the park. So I yelled to the group of runners as I was following them out. I yelled that to them. I said, I'll stay right here. I'm going to come back and get you know your testimony. I'm going to get a statement, but I'm going to make sure they're out of the park. So I followed them out of the park, made sure they hit Hobson Pike and were gone, and came back and got a statement. So that was that was probably my first encounter like that, and it was even worse for the fact that I didn't have really any way to defend myself or the people around. It was an interesting conversation with my boss the next morning. I can say that. Yeah. And Chris, you're not a small guy, so you probably be able to handle yourself. But I think a lot of people uh, don't realize that park rangers do have arrest powers, correct? Yes, sir. That's absolutely correct. And uh, a lot of my own friends, when they uh, realized where I was going and what I was going to get into as an occupation, and I explained, hey, so just so you know, you won't see me for three months of the year because I'll be at the, at the police academy. They were like, what? <laughs> and so, yes, I had to explain to my buddies and, and anyone else that asked, like, yes, um, I'm in the class. I think we had a graduating class of 99 people. I was in there with uh, county officers, city officers, TWA officers, TBI officers were in there. So um, we all go to the same training academy, and um, we all graduate with what they call commissioned powers, which means you carry a firearm and have a badge. Um, so obviously we're, we're park rangers, and people see us a little differently. Um, but we do carry a duty belt. We'll have it on us whether we're in a field dress or a class A um, dress, but we start off friendly if at all possible, which I would assume is how most officers handle themselves. We're kind of asked to do that a little more for the fact that we're in a park setting, um, but we can do something as simple as just a verbal warning, um, which then will escalate to a courtesy warning, which again, no fees or uh, fines are associated. It's just a basically a paper trail, as I explained, or documentation of what this person has done in this particular instance, and it's just that, a courtesy warning. It's no harm, no foul, just please don't do this again. And then we can give proper citations, which are written to you with like a speeding citation, for example, if you get caught speeding on the road and the officer writes you a traffic violation, a speeding violation in the form of a citation, we have those ready to go. Um, and then obviously we carry handcuffs, mace, uh, the whole bit, as well as the firearm, um, and we're able to cuff and, and arrest people. We have full arresting powers just like any of the other typical law enforcement officers you may be used to. Depending on what park you're at, uh, we may or may not have a way to transport. And what that means, um, a lot of your um, county officers or city officers will have a cage in the back of their vehicle, be it an SUV or be it a, a, you know some type of sedan. We currently do not have a vehicle on the park that has a cage. So some of the county sheriff's offices, officers are always kind enough, and, and they do a great deal of patrolling through here anyway, which I'm very grateful for. But if and when we do have to arrest somebody, um, we'll call them mainly for for the caged effect and for the transport effect. But it's always nice, obviously, to have backup as well because you never can tell if a situation might get out of hand. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah. yes, we have full arresting powers, and people uh, oftentimes don't realize that. They think we're rent-a-cops or joke cops or don't really have any real authority, which is definitely not the case. And I will say this. Not all states have commissioned officers. North Carolina does, for example, and they handle their own traffic stops. They set up you know, checkpoints and, and all kinds of stuff. Um, and then I, I think Ohio is not, for example. I was up there at a, at a Jeep show. I'm a big Jeep guy. I was up at a Jeep show and stayed at a state park lodge there, and um, there was a guy doing a – I think he had a great horned owl. He was doing a program on a great horned owl over in the corner of uh, the lodge, and he had a full uniform on but no duty belt. So there are certain states that commission their park rangers and park managers, and there are certain states that do not. We happen to be a state that does, and as far as I know, there are no intentions to change from that. Interesting. You know, I think a lot of people have no respect for property. And what are some of the, give us some etiquette tips that we can do coming into the park. So when you check in with us, you'll get your, what we call the check-in paperwork. And basically what that is, is a campground map. And we identify critical spots on there. Where is your site? Where is the park office? 
uh, where are the campground host sites, for example, maintenance, which houses our laundry facility, just anything of interest, playgrounds, things that they might be uh, asking to know or needing to know. And that's on one side. And then on the back side of that, um, we'll have down to bottom. It's very small. We've reduced it to kind of like the main things that we have to deal with. You have your rules and regs of the park. And so some of the etiquette things that you mentioned, check-in time is at 4 p.m. Can you get in a little early? Yes, typically. But don't try to get here at 10 o'clock in the morning, and here's the reason why. Uh, Check-out time is at 12 noon. Check-in time is at 4 p.m. So we have to have a four-hour window for very busy days. Um, say you've got the majority of your campground is checking out, well, then the campground hosts, which is their main reason for being here, as well as checking in people, they have to get from site to site and clean the site, and that details the firing, the grill, blowing the site off, and picking the site up of any litter that might be left behind. Um, one of the rules and regs that are listed there on the back of this check-in paperwork is, you know, don't burn your trash don't burn your debris and the firings and a lot of times people disregard that and so again we pride ourselves on being litter free here and and it's very well looked after and neat and cosmetically appealing um aesthetically appealing and we have to pick all the trash out of the firing for example when somebody does that and it doesn't get burnt all the way or they just throw it in there and don't even attempt to burn it so that's an example of we want people to come in and find it you know leave it like you found it and so if we have it spot you know, I'm going to say spotless, but if we have it pretty clean and you don't leave it like that, that would be a failure to, to conduct yourself with proper etiquette. Um, another big thing that we deal with quite a lot, and I've got signs right outside the office. This is also attached to your email-generated receipt, and it's also on the handout of the campground check-in paperwork that we hand out, is you must burn heat-treated or certified wood only unless it's something that you found down and dead on the park grounds. So... One of the things when I got back as manager that I started having everybody ask, instead of just trying to peek in or peer in or guess or wonder, just straight up ask people that are checking in, do you have any firewood that I need to inspect? And the reason for that is a lot of people don't understand it because the policy has changed over the years. It used to be if you were within so many miles, say 50 miles of the park, you could bring it. If you were within the county, you could bring it. And so it's kind of deviated over the years. But I know pretty solidly for the last five, six years, we've had a burn-only heat-treated, certified, as they call it, firewood, or park wood that you find down and dead you know, near your site. And here's the reason why. It's a biological thing in which pests, for example, the emerald ash borer beetle, can travel inside of a piece of firewood that you've cut in your backyard. And when you get here with it, if you lay it on the ground, that insect, that pest in this case, can crawl out of there and infest our trees here in the park. And then we've got an emerald ash borer problem here in the park, which we do have ash trees. You have green, white, and blue, and we have a couple of those species here. So a lot of problem, people think that we're trying to make a, a dollar on it and you got to buy our firewood, and that is definitely not the case. They, they think that we're trying to, you know, not allow them to burn their firewood that they worked hard in cutting or stacking or loading up. And the deal is we're trying to protect our forest, our woods here on the park, and they don't always understand that. So you can buy it in town, TSC, Lowe's, things of that nature typically have heat-treated firewood. We keep a stand of it here in the park. And then again, if they find stuff dead and down on the ground, happy to use it. The only thing we ask is that they cut it into a decent length so that it sits in the fire pit. So that's another etiquette thing. We're constantly having to check for firewood and and people will sneak it in and they'll have it underneath a ton of cover on their truck bed and you don't see it at first and they'll tell you, no, we don't have any for you to inspect. And then later on you find them on their site and the truck tailgate is down and you can see it in there and then you have to step out and say, hey, didn't we talk about this? So it puts you in a bad position because you gave them the opportunity right up front to be, you know, to come forth with it and let, let me know, yeah, I got some. Would you look at it and see if it's kosher? And sometimes they've bought it at other parks and it is heat treated and it's not touched the ground and it's something that we allow. Or they bought it in town and I just got this at Lowe's and we're like, oh yeah, you're good to go. Mm-hmm. So it's not always trying to catch somebody doing something wrong. It's just verifying what we need to. It's part of our job and making sure that we're 
protecting, as we call it, the resource from the people and the people from the resource. That's kind of one of the mottos we have here in Tennessee State Parks. Yep. So um, firewood is an issue. For the most part, people are pretty good about their dogs on leash, but uh, you'll get the rare individual that feels that their dog is uh, super-duper trained and listens to every word that the owner says and would, <laughs> would in no means you know, attack anybody or any of that. But what they often don't understand is if, if their dog is off the leash, it can wander out, even though it's not being aggressive, and get in the midst of some other dogs that are sure. on leash if there's a trail walking nearby your site, things of that nature. So we always need to have a, con- a constant lookout for people to keep their dogs on the leash. And then a couple other smaller things that, again, is not as often as the others I've mentioned, but tiki torches and things of that nature are not allowed. We do allow citronella candles, but we've had some instances in, in years past where tiki torches are lit. It falls from an elevated vantage, and, it's, and it hits the ground and kind of explodes or spills, and then you've got an issue, um, particularly if it's dry, you know, and you've got some cedar or something nearby. It can turn into an issue really fast. Sure. So uh, there are just a fuel park rules and regs that you'll find either on our website or on the camper check-in paperwork um, that you'll need to follow. And so and another thing is we have an electronic gate out here. It shuts this time of year at 7 p.m. When the time change occurs, it will close at 5 p.m. It rises in the morning at 6 a.m. So when you get here, you have a code that's given to you either over the phone or on your email-generated receipt, and it's a five-digit code, and, and you can get in the gate that way. Well, if you're coming in late because you've had a breakdown or you got away from work late or you're traveling from another state, proper etiquette there would be to get in and do as little unpacking and setting up as possible until the next morning and proper you know, day-use hours. Yep. So that's just some things that we've dealt with lately and or over the years, excuse me, <clears throat> that uh, one would mean to be aware of as they come out to the park. It's always wise to check any park that you're going to, whether it's a Tennessee State Park or otherwise. You want to check their rules and regs and make sure what you can and can't bring, what you can and can't do while you're there. Well, Chris, I mean, it sounds like a great park, and I think everybody here in Sumner County is, uh, uh, should be honored to have this park, and we appreciate your service and everything that you've done, because obviously you love your job, and uh, that is, that, that, that's incredible, and that makes people want to come back. So thanks to Chris Thurman. He, yes, and Chris is our, our head ranger down at Bledsoe Creek State Park, and we appreciate his time. So join us again next week for more Sumner County Spotlight right here at WHIN. You'll be able to actually listen to this again by going to whinradio.com. You can check out the latest podcast section. This is Jeff Shannon. So join us again for another Sumner County Spotlight brought to you by FM Bank at 221 Indian Lake Boulevard, myfnmbank.com. Have a good day. Sumner County Spotlight has been brought to you exclusively by FNM Bank, 221 Indian Lake Boulevard in Hendersonville. Whether you need personal banking, banking for your business, or even home mortgages, FNM Bank can provide you with excellent service right here in Sumner County. Visit them today at myfmbank.com. Sumner County Spotlight will return next Sunday at 10 a.m. Thanks for listening.